Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Jenna Hofstein. Hello. Hi, Jenna. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm really well. So, Jenna, who are you? I am a indie game developer, and I'm making educational games. So I just launched my first title. It's called The Counting Kingdom, and it is a math game for six to eight-year-olds. So I played it last night. I I (laughs) bought it and I played it and it's really fun. Thank you. I was so surprised. I'm like, all right, I'm 30 something. I'll go ahead and give it a go. (laughs) Thank you. And that really was the goal from the beginning. Um, About half of our reviews on Steam are from adults who are just enjoying it as like a fun number puzzle game. And that to me is just so exciting. Like I really wanted to take this kind of Pixar-like approach where technically it's for kids, but really it's something that anybody can enjoy. Um, So it makes me very happy to hear that you liked it. I really did. And I texted my best friend. She's got a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old. And I was like, you you need to get this for the girls <laughs> because, because it's really, it's really good, you know. Oh, well, thank you for helping me spread the word. Yeah, I'd, lo- <laughs> I'd love to. Um, So Will you talk about the game a little bit? Like, it's a counting game. What do you do? Sure. So the title is actually a little bit misleading. It's more of an addition game, and I regret now picking that specific title, but the alliteration was just too Mm -hmm. good to pass up. Uh, So basically, you are the wizard's apprentice, and you're defending the kingdom from the invading monsters. So it is turn-based tower defense. And the idea was to build a math game from the ground up that is fundamentally a game. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but so many educational games on the market right now are quizzes. And so this was really built with the intent of being something very interesting, very strategic, where it's not just like quiz question, fun gameplay, quiz question, fun gameplay. The math is the fun gameplay. Those are one in the same thing. And so monsters come towards your castle and they each have a little number on their belly. And then you have a number of spells, which coincidentally are also numbers. And so you need to find connecting monsters whose numbers add up to any one of your spells. And then you have, you know, special uh, special potions that you can use and you can add spells and there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can do on top of that. And what I really loved about it is that it seemed like it was kind of matching my abilities. And I don't know, I wanted to ask you if that's something that was intentionally written into it somehow. Because when I started using like double digit numbers, I noticed that I was getting more double digit numbers for spells. Is that was that just a coincidence? Or is that was that intentional? So it doesn't have any kind of uh, dynamic difficulty updating, but every level is hand uh, tuned so that the monsters that are coming onto the board are going to be matched by a set of spells that work well with that group of monsters. Um, So it sounds like you just got a really well done random mix of spells. (laughs) Yeah, I I loved it because, you know, you you give instruction, like there's definitely a tutorial there that teaches people, kids how to use it. But it really is, um, there's a lot of discovery to it. So I was like, okay, well, this is a game for six to eight year olds. I'm in the early levels. Am I going to be able to go into double digits? And so I just, I tried it to see what would happen. And yeah, double digits were fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that, that was one of the things that I got a lot of positive feedback on. And I tried to put into the game as much as possible where the, one of the big goals was to make it really exciting for kids to actually do math and to 
push their own math abilities. So you can add spells together. There's a cap in every region because I discovered early on that kids would just add spells, add spells, add spells, add spells. Mm. Until they'd have like 127 spells. <laughs> it's just like, you are not going to be able to use that. Nice try. <laughs> but, you know, if they do want to push their abilities a little bit, they can make some nice, big, juicy spells. And the more monsters you cast a spell on at any given time, the sort of bigger and flashier the spell explosion is. So I really tried to make it very, very rewarding for kids to push their math abilities a little bit. And I also like you kind of introduce multiplication. So I think I played through the first three regions last night Mm -hmm. and I am going to continue playing (laughs) because it is fun and I want to see where the story goes. Um, But so you have the multiplier tiles Mm -hmm. that at the point where I am, it'll double the number of a monster. So it's kind of introducing more concepts to them than just just addition. And I thought that was really a cool way to approach it. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to, you know, throw some throw some spice into the game in those later levels just to make it that little bit more strategic, that little bit more challenging. Um, and the doubling tile seemed a good way to do it. I didn't want to add in multiplication kind of across the board, but doubling is something that is really one of the very early concepts that kids learn with multiplication. So it seemed a good way to kind of dip my toe into the multiplication waters without fully making the game about multiplication. So there's a little bit of subtraction with the potions, a little bit of multiplication with the doubling tile. Um, but that's really just to kind of, you know, keep things fresh and interesting and challenging. So do you have a background in education? I don't. My background is actually in uh, entertainment game design. So I've been in the industry for about eight years. And this is the first educational title that I've done. So it's been uh, really interesting. It's a very, very different genre of games the rules are very different the expectations are very different um so it's been uh very educational for me to (laughs) to do this and to learn about um just this this part of the games industry how neat i um like i don't want to just gush about your game but i thought (laughs) i thought it was so cool i liked um can you talk about the art style a little bit because it it's whimsical and cute but it's beautiful (laughs) so what what goes into planning that and how did you decide on you and your team decide on the arts kind of this 2d painted kind of art style thank you yeah I uh, I absolutely love how the art came out in the game it just makes me so very happy so I'm working with uh an artist Luigi Guattieri who I discovered he did the art for um a game by another local Boston developer called Girls Like Robots. And I basically saw the game and was just like, oh my God, whoever did the art for this, I need to like kidnap them and convince them to work (laughs) on my game. And so fortunately, in addition to being an amazing artist, he's just also an awesome guy. So I kind of like tracked him down and was like, hey, I'm making a game and you should work on it pretty please. Um, and it's just worked out so well. So one of the things we really we really tried to work on from the very beginning was how do we make an art style that's really beautiful and dynamic, but not uh, stereotypically kiddy? You know, again, mm-hmm. a lot of the educational games I look at feel very kind of sugar-coated, watered down. And I wanted this game to really feel like an adventure. So I wanted those 
bright, bold colors, um, those, you know, adorable, slightly scary, but not really scary monsters so that it would be something that appealed to kids. But I wanted it to feel like a big, awesome, exciting adventure to kids and not just kind of like, you know, oh, this is a kid's game. Mm -hmm. So he was able to just find a color palette and a style that that just worked really beautifully for that. Yeah, it's it's just beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. That's one of my favorite things on reviews is people are just like, oh, my God, this game is so cute. I'm like, I know it is. Well, yeah, and I'm a sucker because I love tower defense games. It's probably my favorite genre, like Warcraft 3, Starcraft, um, (laughs) Kingdom Rush is my absolute all-time favorite game on iPad, which might be part of why I like Counting Kingdoms so much is because it it has that renaissance-y, you know, (laughs) defend the castle, defend Mm -hmm. the kingdom feel to it. Um, So tower defense is is my jam. So (laughs) I think that's also part of why Counting Kingdom appealed to me so much. Awesome. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I think it worked pretty well is that that's a very well-known genre. And so there were a lot of things that I didn't really have to explain. Like I say, defend the towers, but that carries with it a whole range of information about the game. So it it wasn't intentional, but it worked out kind of nicely that by borrowing a genre that most kids probably have some familiarity with um i was able to kind of you know play on the fact they already knew a lot about how to play the game yeah it also reminded me of castle panic the cooperative board game i don't know if you've played that at all oh i don't think i have it's uh you have monster it's basically a a a game board, a square game board. You mm-hmm. have six, six or eight different regions on it, and monsters come in from each of these regions, and you have to um, defend your castle from them. So, oh, was, perfect. Yeah, I mean it's basically <laughs> the same, and you do it by. Um, oh shoot, I haven't played it in a couple of months, and now I can't remember. Rolling <laughs> is it rolling the dice? I, I don't know, but. It, yeah, but you have to hit them and you get a certain number of hits per monster. And it was interesting, that kind of corollary to me, too. Cool. Yeah, I always find that when I make games, somebody is always like, oh, this is so similar to this other game. It's like, you know, there are just like an infinite number of games mm-hmm. out there. And everybody has always had similar ideas, which I think is a good thing. Well, it's kind of the human story. <laughs> yes, it is. So... Do you have further plans for Counting Kingdom or are you moving on to other projects? Um, both. So there's a bunch of stuff I'd love to do with the Counting Kingdom. Um, one of the things I'll be looking into in the next year, and this is kind of a slow burn type of project, uh, but I would love to start getting it into schools. That, you know, I grew up playing so many fun educational games in school and it would just be so much fun to have it come full circle to (laughs) get Mm -hmm. my own game into schools. But that's a very, um, you know, that's not something I can kind of jump into because doing it on a school by school basis would be um, very, very slow. So I'm looking to potentially partner with one or two companies who can help me out in that area. Um, But sort of simultaneously while doing that, I'm definitely going to be working on the next game. So are you ready to talk about the next game at all? Or is it still a surprise? (laughs) Not quite yet. I've got a bunch of different ideas, but I'm still trying to figure out um, which path exactly to go down. Yeah. I imagine it's hard to pick a project just as as a writer. And I, I think about starting a story and it's... 
infinite possibilities, right? <laughs> and then yes. you have to you have to be like, okay, well, here's the the bottom twenty five percent, and here's the top twenty five percent. So let's go with that. And that elimination process for me, I know this isn't the same for everybody, is kind of terrifying. Oh yeah. Um, because like you're committing, I'm going to work on this and I'm not going to work on these other things unless I change my mind. So, <laughs> you know, for me, that was one of the big unexpected surprises about going indie is that I always imagined it would just be like amazing to work on whatever I wanted. But it is kind of terrifying where you have this infinite possibility space and you're like, how do I possibly narrow this down to just one or two things to work on at a time? And it's it's tough because you it's hard not to second guess those choices. Um, like I would love to, I would love to really stick with math for the next game, like basic, you know, third, fourth grade math. But one of the things that I've found is that it's very tough to get um, journalists interested in writing about those types of games because there are so many math games out there. And an article about, you know, here's a math game that's basic edition is not necessarily like the sexiest article. (laughs) And so, you know, that's very much something that I want to do, but it's, it's hard not to think like, well, should I pick a subject that maybe journalists would be more excited about? Like, I, I don't know that that infinite possibility space can be a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, Oh, I wanted to talk to you about pricing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of an expensive game, relative Mm -hmm. to what's going on on iOS right now and um, Steam even. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this kind of hard position I feel like indie game developers are in, especially for like iOS, where if it's not like microtransactions and in-app purchases, people kind of tend to dismiss it. So I was wondering with the $5 price tag on iOS – how did you decide to price it at that point and kind of what has the reception been? Yeah, so pricing for me is still very much a big question mark and something that I'm actively trying to figure out. Uh, I think the educational category is one of the last places where you can really get away with a premium game unless you're you know, one of the exceptions. Um, most other genres have just gone completely free to play at this point. But free to play is a real minefield in the kids category. Actually with the kids category, I don't uh I don't think you can do no you can, but there there are some pretty strict rules around in-app purchases. But there are huge trust issues with parents and in-app purchases. And all of the big players, uh Apple, Google and Amazon, I believe, have been sued because of kids just accidentally spending hundreds of dollars in these apps. And so the guidelines around them have gotten very, very strict. And it's it's really just a trust issue with parents. So I knew very early on that I wanted to do a premium game just to be something that kids knew, uh, sorry, that parents knew was absolutely safe for their kids. They didn't have to, you know, worry about them accidentally spending money. Um, and I went with a very, you know, high, relatively high price tag for iOS uh, because I felt that's what the game was worth. And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous. Um, I lowered it recently actually to $2.99 and I'm going to be continuing to play around with that price point. Uh, I I think that $4.99 was a little bit high. Um, I was not seeing quite the sales response that I hoped for. And I think that price was one of the reasons for that. And one of the things that I'm realizing is that 
as a new brand, brands seem to be very, very important in the kids' space. And if you look at games like, um, or brands like Tokoboka and the Dr. Panda series, like I've heard from parents over and over that it doesn't matter what the new games are from those brands, they're just going to buy them because they know their kids are going to love them and they know that they're safe and they don't have to worry about in-app purchases. Uh, so being the first game from our company, we don't have that credibility quite yet. Mm. And so I don't think we could really get away <laughs> with that price point because of that. Um, but it's it's something that I'll be playing around with in the next couple of months just to see sort of what makes sense, uh, where most people are comfortable buying the game, but I can still kind of try to make something of a living from it. Um, but it's still, you know, that's a it's a tough question mark for indies trying to figure out where that sweet spot is. Yeah, and it's it's hard for me as kind of this tech aficionado and as I become friends with more and more indie developers and I work for a company that, you know, a large part of our revenue comes from iOS and Mac. And, um, you know, we've even been it's it's a pretty big name um, in the iOS community. And even we've kind of been playing around with pricing structures and an app mm. purchase and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, but I get so frustrated as a person who like I'm married to a person who develops. I have friends who are indie games developers and just indie app developers and then I have friends on the other end of the spectrum who are like, yeah, I, I don't buy an app. I've, I've never purchased an app or I would really like to try this app, but it costs me $2. And I'm like, you go to Starbucks every day and you yeah. can't pay $2 for an app that you will use three or four times a day. And I don't know what the solution is here, but I'm really like... That's why I didn't ask you for like a promo code. I'm like, I'm giving her money, you know, <laughs> oh, because, thank you. <laughs> but, you know, I'm like, if, if we don't support the indie developers, these things that we like are going to go away. Like they just yeah. can't do it. It's tough. And I, I really don't know the answer to that. And we're unfortunately seeing that squeeze across the board. So iOS is actively becoming a harder place for indies to make a living, but Steam is also becoming actively a harder place for indies to make a living. Um, and so it's, you know, it's it's tough. And I think we've seen this explosion of indies when we're going to really start to see that plateau as people realize that, you know, myself included, realize that this is a real business endeavor and to make a living in this is actually very, very difficult. Um, so I don't I don't have any answers there except that, yeah, it's it's tough. It's very tough. And I don't know a whole lot about Steam, but, you know, I know of myself. So as much as I'm like, oh, I like for these apps I've discovered to go back to full price and not buy them on sale because I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I can afford to do that. I buy Steam. I buy games on Steam on sale almost exclusively. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm examining this behavior as we're talking. I'm like, well, that's a little hypocritical. <laughs> Well, the the sales are, you know, it's a double-edged sword because it's a great way for developers to get a huge, um, you know, influx of purchases, but it can sometimes be at a very, very reduced discount. So it's, you know, these things are all good and bad. Same with the Humble Bundle, like the hum we were in the Humble Weekly Bundle, and that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, but, you know, for other developers, it can, it's... All of these things are are a double-edged sword. Uh, and with Steam in particular, they're becoming more and more open. They're adding more and more games uh, every week, every month. 
And so it, it used to be a much more exclusive marketplace. Um, so again, it's great for developers like me who probably would not have been able to get the Counting Kingdom on Steam, uh, say, two years ago. But it also means that along with me are coming all of these other people that I have to compete against and the market mm-hmm. is getting much more flooded. Um, so it's, you know, it's just the reality of the situation and we have to uh, adjust and strategize accordingly. Yeah, well... I don't know. Like, on the one hand, I want to say good luck, but that sounds a little, you know, I just... I can use all the luck I get. I do. Can't we all? But I, um, I don't know. I, it concerns me, I guess, that, that these things that I like so much might go away because we've had this, um, as so many people have called it, this race to the bottom with pricing. And, um, like, if TweetBot goes away, I, I will be a puddle of tears <laughs> and if you know there there's so many apps that I use a lot of the time that I just I have people who are like oh well I use the Twitter app it's free why would I pay two three four dollars for an app so yeah yeah so I wanted to talk about you worked on Revolution 60 a little bit right I did yeah I did the initial design for their combat system so can you talk about that and how um, because the combat in that is very unusual and I guess, I guess I would call it revolutionary in in some ways. Like I'm trying not to be a to pun, and you know, and I guess I need to disclose. You know, Brianna Wu and I are um, friendly, and you know, we talk offline every once in a while, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that people aren't like, oh, conflict of interest. I like the game. I'm also friends with Brianna. Um, so can you talk about the combat though? Because that was really interesting to me as I played it. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, I yeah. So I came on board. Gosh, this was a while ago, uh, probably about two years ago, to do the initial design for the combat. And the first thing that I did was really talk to all the team members about the high-level goals for the game and the high-level goals for combat. And two ideas came up repeatedly. Uh, The first was that the game itself was very, very cinematic. They were trying to create something that was very big and epic and dramatic and had all these really beautiful camera shots. And so that word kept coming up over and over and over. And then also accessible. They wanted this to be something that anybody, regardless of age, regardless of gaming experience, could pick up and play and really enjoy. And so that for me was the seed of the idea for the combat system was that it needed to be something that created these really beautiful, awesome, epic moments, but was also just incredibly easy to play. Um, and also was obviously not a knockoff of any other games like um, Infinity Blade or any of the other combat-heavy uh, iOS games. And so that's where you got the combination of the kind of tap-to-move, tap-to-shoot combat system, but then also these really big um, special moves that had the QTEs where you just got these really awesome combat shots and camera angles of Holiday just being super kick-ass. So- the way it works is you'll have a slider and you'll need to tap the screen at a certain point, you mm-hmm. know, when the slider is in a certain region, or you need to draw, um, trace a circle once or two and a half times or, or whatever, or, um, it's been a little while since I've played, so I'm trying to think of some <laughs> of the other mechanics, um, or tap and hold in multiple places or right, yeah. like, trace a square, trace other shapes. Yeah. So how how did you conceive of that? Because 
I never would have thought to have a combat mechanic like that. Like, like you've talked about how you talk to everybody and it needed to be accessible and it didn't need to, you know, shouldn't be complex and that kind of thing. So how was tracing shapes and, and getting timing right and that kind of thing, what you decided might work? So the QTEs were actually inspired uh, from other parts of the game, from design that they already had. So the, you know, either clicking on the screen in different places or tracing different shapes, they were using that mechanic in different areas of the game to let you either, you know, block a shot or climb through a tunnel or all sorts of different things. So it was a mechanic that I could take advantage of because it was something that players would already know how to do. It also ended up working out very well because the movements that you were doing could be matched really nicely to um, the sort of move that Holiday was performing. So if she's, you know, doing a, a punch and then an uppercut, you could do a tap and then a swipe up. If she's doing a big roundhouse kick, you could do a circle uh, trace. And so the the movement that you are performing could be matched up in a really interesting way with the actual move that Holiday was performing. Um, so it it just all kind of came together in a really nice way. Yeah, it it was really cool. I wasn't sure what to expect with the game. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I heard about, well, different ways of of handling combat mechanics. And I was like, all right. And <laughs> then I did. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this really is different. Well, thank you. So what else have you worked on that you can talk about? Um, I've, uh, A lot of different things. <laughs> uh, so the other uh, sort of freelance project that I've worked on while being an indie developer was Children of Liberty. I did uh, level design for them for, I think, about six months or so. So I'm not familiar with Children of Liberty. Can you tell me about it? Sure. Children of Liberty is from another uh, Boston-based indie developer, and it is a stealth game set in the Revolutionary War where you are a kid. You're actually There's a bunch of different kids who are the main characters. And you are trying to rescue your parents. And so you go through a lot of the historical events of the time. Um, You know, you're working with Paul Revere. And it's got a lot of really fun history in it. um, And a lot of really interesting stealth mechanics. So what goes into doing level design? So level design for me is about trying to figure out what is the... Um, what is kind of the vibe of this game and what are the very special moments that can be created with these mechanics and so trying to you know it's I typically do more systems design and level design is is very different and interesting in that it's mostly linear you know obviously it depends on what type of game you're creating Um, but for this project in general it was more linear so it's about kind of trying to put together this interesting uh tempo where you get highs and lows and interesting moments and challenges and downtimes and really creating kind of this um uh yeah just this somewhat linear experience that has an interesting I don't know the right word to it it has this interesting tempo to it I think it's fascinating to me coming into this um because I've never really thought about what goes into designing a game like you know, I've played games on and off my entire life, and I never really thought, sat down and thought about what kind of work went into it. Like, I obviously, <laughs> it's a lot of work, you know, I, you know, playing, I like World of Warcraft. I've started playing World of Warcraft again recently, and I think about that universe and how huge it is and how much yeah. lore there is and how complex it is and how 
they're building on it over time with expansions and it's it's feels very overwhelming to me but even talking <laughs> you know with with indie people such as yourself and um, I'm also friends with Anna McGill who is a games writer and learning about how all of these different pieces and all of these different um job types kind of dovetail into each other and it's really interesting to me to learn about just just what goes into it yeah, games are are really much more work than I think most people expect. When you look at Kickstarters, my reaction to 90% of Kickstarters is that they're not asking for anywhere near enough money to actually <laughs> create a game. And it's it's too bad because a lot of the comments that you see on these Kickstarters are like, what, $40,000? That's way too much for that game. And it's like, actually, that's about a quarter of what it would really cost right. <laughs> to make that game. Because you're talking about multiple people's salaries, you know, on top of other development costs. And it's uh, making a game is a, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm starting to realize how, <laughs> you know, because these people, the the one person studio is not really the norm. And it's right. not realistic for things with a lot of story elements or mm -hmm. a lot of you know well it depends on the type of game it depends on the type of game because you can get um like a lot of the interactive fiction coming out i believe is by sort of one person development teams um and so it just depends on sort of the overall complexity of what you're trying to do but like look at something like the counting kingdom that's relatively simple and it still took me um about a year and a half to to put together well, and I was thinking about it as I was playing last night and just the, you know, I have a background in education, but even deciding how to ramp up difficulty or the potential options that players have and when to introduce that, I imagine just just that little element of it, like how quickly should this progress probably took a lot of planning and I would imagine an significant well at least a moderate amount of play testing with kids just to figure out if it was hitting the right notes and advancing quickly but not too quickly and absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and fortunately i was able to put together a system where the balancing was relatively easy um so every the the set of monsters and the set of spells for every level is in just an xml file and so I can go through and very quickly edit any level just by changing the numbers that are in that file. Um, but that, you know, that was one of the areas where it was absolutely crucial to be playtesting with kids as much as possible just to make sure that the difficulty curve felt good. So it was something that was engaging for them, but not too frustrating. And that uh, the beginning and end points both felt relatively good as well. And it was really interesting for me because I found that Every kid is so unique in their uh, math ability, their math interest. And, you know, it, it, the game is for six to eight year olds, but I have found four year olds who can knock it out of the park. And wow. I have found 10 year olds who really struggle with it. So it very much depends on the individual kid. How do you do playtesting with kids? That has been one of my biggest <laughs> challenges, honestly, uh, because my friends who have kids, they're all like one year old. So they're not right. they're not quite ready for the Counting Kingdom. <laughs> Soon, uh, just a few months, yeah. it'll be all right. Yeah. So it's it's really been a combination of um, just sort of mining my personal network and trying to figure out who has kids in this age range. 
Uh, and I was, you know, able to find a couple people that I could kind of play test with every couple of months. And then just attending as many events as possible that might have kids and play test with them there. So things like uh, packs, uh, events like, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of other ones that had kids. Really, it was PAX and then the Cambridge Science Festival last summer was just like a four-hour nonstop flood of kids oh, wow. <laughs> playing the game, which was amazing, but it's also hard exhausting. to get. A oh, well, yes, <laughs> definitely exhausting. Um, but, you know, they all play for maybe like uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And so it's really good for that kind of initial like, okay, do they get this? Are they excited by this? Can they figure out how to do it? But not quite as helpful for the long term, like, okay, does the difficulty curve feel good? Do they get bored halfway through the game? Do they, you know, is the end of the game much too hard, much too easy? Uh, so I got a lot of kids that I could play test with, with just kind of that first initial experience, which is crucial and great that I was able to do that. But I wish I was able to find a few more kids that I could kind of follow through um, with their progression through the game. Long term. Yeah. How how many levels are there? Uh, 30 different levels total across five different regions. So I'm about halfway through. Yeah, okay. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so are you, you were at PAX East last year. Are you going to be there this year? I was. Um, I'm not sure, you know, unfortunately, and this keeps happening, PAX East and GDC are overlapping this year. Yeah. Um, so I'm not planning on exhibiting at PAX this year. Um, at PAX East. I'm hoping to attend for at least a day or two, but it really kind of depends on when I end up coming back from GDC. So we'll see. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate timing. I'm, um, I will be at PAX this year. So <laughs> PAX East. So um, but yeah, I have, I have friends who are like, well, I can choose which one to go to. And I'm going to go to GDC because it's better professionally for me to go there i'm like yeah yeah i know and it, it depends on kind of where your game is so like if i you know if i hadn't launched the game yet i think i would be much more likely to exhibit but the game launched in november so it's not gonna be super like newsworthy mm -hmm. <laughs> if i exhibit there um so i think my time is probably better spent at gdc so what talk about GDC a little bit, please? What what is GDC for the people who don't know? <laughs> sure, GDC is the Game Developers Conference, and it is, I believe, the biggest conference uh, for folks who make games, at least in North America. I don't, I have no idea if it's the biggest one in the world, but it's certainly the biggest one um, that we attend every year. And it is just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of game developers all in the same place and it's really exciting because it runs the full spectrum of uh genres and studio sizes so some some conferences are more for indies some conferences are more for uh you know mobile games but this is really for everybody from mobile to triple a to indie to facebook to everything in between um they also have the uh igf the indie game festival there and the a big awards show um so it's uh, it's just a really exciting week. You know, obviously there are lots of panels and talks and a big show floor and um, lots of fun stuff. It's a lot of really exciting people all in the same place. The thing I wanted to do was uh, Train Jam, which past guest Adriel oh. Wallach does. Looks like where, so much fun. I know. <laughs> and well, and Adriel's just such, um, 
she's just funny and you know yeah yeah, i just i just want to sit on a train for a few days and (laughs) and get to know her better than i do you know based on her interactions on twitter and the show that she did but you know i i was really hoping that i might actually be able to partake and participate in that this year and like i'd probably skip gdc but i talked to her about it and i'm like you know i'm not a game developer but i am a writer and she said yep come (laughs) oh yeah we need you don't have to be in games to do a game jam and you definitely don't have to be in games to do a train jam and and we need people who have all sorts of different talents and it just sounds you know you go from chicago to la on a train and (laughs) make games and i was like that's amazing it sounds like a blast and game jams in general are just unbelievably fun yeah and it just, I don't know. It just sounds so interesting <laughs> to me to just sit with a bunch of creative people and come up with something. Yeah. And I think they really, um, you know, especially for folks who are just getting into the industry or interested in it, it's such a nice little like self-encapsulated slice of what it's like to make games because, um, you know, it's something like the Global Game Jam. You show up Friday night having no idea what you're doing, no idea what the theme is. And then by Sunday night, you have something done and it may be tiny and it may be ugly and it may be awful, but it is yours and you made it in like two days, which is absolutely nuts. Yeah. And it's just such a good lesson in, um, you know, what goes into making games and how do you scope your game such that you can actually get it done in 48 hours. And that really is a huge challenge and trips up a lot of folks, but it's a really invaluable lesson just in terms of like, what can you actually do? What is the reality of uh, what you can make in such a short time span? Yeah. The other thing that Adriel did was the game a week thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it was interesting to me to kind of watch the scope of her games is, you know, you've got this 48 hour chunk of time or you have seven days or or whatever. But when you're you have these constraints, it's interesting to me how... I don't know, little the game needs to be, if that makes sense. It doesn't mean it's not good, but it's not everything. It's not, you know, music (laughs) and story and good art and yeah. Right. And one of the real nice things that comes out of that is because you're so constrained, you can try something that is totally off the walls or using totally new technology or a totally new genre for you with zero risk because if you make something and it's awful or you don't complete it in the time you had it's like well you know okay i spent two days on that like it's not a huge it's not like you spent six months on it. it's not like you spent a year on it so i always try to do something just totally different for uh game jams whether it's different technology or a genre i haven't worked in before um like my last couple global game jams, I think last year I did an Oculus Rift game. And then the year before that, I did uh, an augmented reality game. Oh, wow. And it was just so fun to just play around with new technology um, in a way that, you know, I don't really get a chance to in sort of my normal day to day job. Uh, so it's they're just so much fun. Well, and it kind of sounds like going to game jams in and of itself is a game, right? So you go yeah. <laughs> you go to your first one, and I imagine you kind of fumble around, and you're like, I have no idea what's happening. And then you kind of incrementally get better, and you level up, and you, you know, you're like, this time I'm going to try an Oculus Rift game, and we'll see how that goes. The nice thing is that you usually get a huge range of folks, you know, everybody from very established industry veterans all the way down to people just looking to get into the industry. 
So usually you have teams that are kind of a nice mix of folks who have done game jams before and people who are bringing, you know, really new, fresh ideas to the table. Um, and so hopefully nobody is thrown into the deep end too badly. <laughs> <laughs> There's always some sort of support there. That sound, it sounds like fun. It really does. It is. It's exhausting, though. And that's, you know, I would love to do train jam, but I can't imagine doing a game jam on a train and then trying to do GDC because GDC is exhausting as well. Yeah. So major kudos to people who can pull that off. Yeah, definitely. Um, So what else are you interested in? You're obviously very into video games, but (laughs) but what what do you do when you want to step away from video games or does that never, ever happen? Uh, well, not quite as frequently as I would like. Yeah. Um, this month has been a lot of fun for me because the Counting Kingdom launched in early November and December is usually a very quiet time for the games industry. Just everybody is really busy with the holidays. And so I kind of have a natural lull where, you know, I'm not crunching to get the game done and I can kind of stand back and think about what I'm doing next. And so I've been taking the opportunity to try and just do really, um, kind of random fun stuff so like i've been making uh twitter bots recently oh no (laughs) (laughs) which is like super random but awesome and like never gonna make me any money which is even better because then i don't have to worry about that (laughs) morality yeah 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 so most recently i made uh, a twitter bot that's called senior science officer and it generates random star trek techno babble oh nice (laughs) and if you tweet at it it will reply to you as if you're an ensign so it will reply to you with instructions (laughs) and the best thing in the world has been seeing people have conversations with the bot like as if they are a star trek officer so they'll like the bot will say something then they'll be like officer like we have a whole breach in section nine and then it will re- like reply to them with instructions and it's just it's amazing it, i think it's so funny that sounds like so much fun <laughs> it's been a lot of fun and i'm trying you know i'm really trying to learn how to program so it's a nice kind of baby step in that direction yeah i i keep saying that i'm gonna start delving into the world of programming and then other things always come up but yeah, yeah. yeah that sounds like a is it? It sounds like it would be kind of a bite-sized project to take on. It is. And the really nice thing is I was able to find um, a template that was made by another local Boston Games developer that it's uh, a Google Scripts template. And it literally has a section in it that says, insert your code here. Oh. <laughs> so he took care of all of the like Twitter interface stuff. And then, you know, all you got to do is put in your code that generates the text uh, for the tweets. So that made it very, very easy. I probably would not have been able to figure out the the round trip all on my own. Um, but because of that, I've been able to put together a couple bots. Nice. Well, as long as it's, you said a Twitter bot, and I was like, oh, no, but no, this sounds like fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And you can just do super random stuff. Uh, like the other one I made is called, what's it called? My Fortune Bot. And it will tweet uh, it says past, present, and future, and it randomly picks an emoji to go into each one. So it's kind of like a tarot card reading type mm. thing. 
Um, and it's, you know, some of them are totally random and you're like, this doesn't even make sense. But then some of them, just the way it gets configured, you're like, wow, like this, this is quite applicable to my life right now. (laughs) (laughs) How did it know? Right, right. So it's, it's just been a fun side project. Oh, cool. (laughs) So I have a final question, which is, um, what's your advice to people who are trying to break into the games industry? Oh, gosh. Um, I could talk about this for hours. (laughs) Uh, So a handful of stuff. The first thing to know is that the games industry is very, very volatile. Uh, So the most recent game developer um, salary survey, I believe one of the results that came out of it was that in the past five years, on average, game developers have had four jobs. And that's, that's just amazing, right? Like that's, that's a lot of upheaval and instability in people's lives especially if you have family you know you have to move all over the place for these jobs and so that's that's kind of just the reality of the industry that it's really important to know getting into it and there are those fortunate few who do stay in a job for three years or five years or you know maybe even longer uh but that's that's very very unusual um so first you know just go in eyes open that that's that's the industry you're getting into um the other two things that I generally tell people are a networking is truly, truly king. Like it's absolutely crucial that you get out there, you find your local meetups and, you know, nine times out of 10, there may not be anything that directly comes out of it, but then that 10th time, you're just going to be amazed. Uh, and this was something that people told me for years and years. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, whatever <laughs> networking, like oh, I'm too busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, really saw the value of this. Uh, it was probably, let me think, two or three months after I sort of first went indie. I was attending a Boston Indies meetup, and I met, uh, coincidentally, Adriel Wallach, who we were talking <laughs> about earlier. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, she to me was just like a random person that I hadn't met. So I was talking with her. I was showing her the game I was working on at the time. And she was asking me about PAX East and about whether I was planning on attending uh, and exhibiting. And I was like, well, you know, I would I would love to exhibit in the Indie Mega Booth. Like, I've heard such great things about it, but I really don't even know how to apply. And she was like, well, funny story. Uh, my sister is Kelly Wallach, who runs the Mega Booth. Oh. And I would be happy to introduce you to her. And I was just nice. like, oh, <laughs> okay, now I understand why people say that you need to get out there and network and show everyone your games. And it just really, really like blew my mind that just a crazy coincidence like that could happen. But if you're out there all the time, just showing your game, you know, you're, um, you're playing the lottery as many times as you can. And hopefully one of those tickets will turn up gold. So networking. And then the last thing I would say is just make games. When I was working for a larger studio before I went indie, we brought on a number of level design interns. And I was shocked at the number of submissions we got from people who said, I love playing games. It's like, that's great. I don't (laughs) care. (laughs) Have you made a game? Have you even tried? Because making games is really hard work. And I think outside of the industry, there's kind of this... um, rock star idea of what it is to make a game and it's like no there is nothing glamorous about right. <laughs> making games like i spend a lot of time in spreadsheets that's not glamorous <laughs> at all <laughs> like, 
that's not exciting. Um, so making games is is great, but it's really important to be able to show a number of games that you've worked on and they have to be done. You know, if you've been working on a game for years, like that's that's not something people are going to be impressed by. You have to show that you can complete games, even if they're awful, even if they're small, even if they're ugly, like just show that you know what it takes to bring an idea into reality. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of that's yes. If I were a recruiter, (laughs) that is what I would be looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think about, I love movies, but that doesn't mean I can make a movie. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. And I would argue that there are a lot of movies that shouldn't have been made anyway. So, you know, (laughs) that's all really good advice. Um, Jenna, how can people find you? Uh, I am in many different places online. So I'm at Twitter at Jay Hofstein. Uh, my company is Little Worlds Interactive. So we're at littleworldinteractive.com. Uh, and the game is at countingkingdom.com. It's out for iOS and PC Max. You can find us on Steam and the Humble Store as well. Um, and yeah, there I'm probably in a bunch of other places too. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to see what's next for you and your studio thank you like i said if you want to make a grown-up game i would be happy to (laughs) i will let you know if that happens (laughs) yeah i mean seriously so well thank you so much um i want to let everyone know that jenna i didn't have someone to come on this week and jenna was like yep i'll be on this week so i'm I'm really grateful to you because it was a little bit of a last minute thing so thank you thank you for having me this was a lot of fun yeah thank you You can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it would be great if you'd leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal.